Mahit came down to the city, heart planet and capital of the Texcolani Empire in a seed skiff, a bubble of a ship, hardly big enough for her body and her luggage both. She squirted from the side of the Imperial cruiser Ascension's Red Harvest and burned atmosphere on her planetward trajectory, which distorted the view. Thus, the first time she saw the city with her own flesh eyes, not infofiche or holograph or imago memory, it was haloed in white fire and shone like an endless glittering sea, an entire planet rendered into an ecumenopolis, palatially urban. Even its dark spots, older metropolises not yet clad in metal, decaying urban blight, and harnessed remains of lakes looked populated. Only the oceans remained untouched, and they gleamed too, a brilliantine blue turquoise. The city was very beautiful, and very big. Mahit had been on a fair number of planets, the ones closest to LaSalle Station, that weren't completely inimical to human life, and she was nevertheless overcome by awe. Her heart beat faster. Her palms went clammy where they gripped her harness. The city appeared exactly as it was always described in Texcolani documents and songs. The jewel at the heart of the empire, complete with atmospheric glow. Welcome to The Archetypist, the only analytics-based genre fiction podcast. I'm Negative Nine Carburetor. Fuck, now you put me on the spot <laughs> to come up with one. I'm 17 Redwood Tree. How about that? 17 Redwood. <laughs> Wait, why are you Negative Nine? <laughs> Let's tr- are you okay? <laughs> Let's try it again. Welcome to The Archetypist. <laughs> The only analytics-based genre fiction podcast. I'm 69 Air Filter. I am negative nine Redwood Tree. Why did you say 69? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you've read this book before, you probably guessed that we are tar- talking about A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin today. Yes. Actually, I read an interview by her and I was disappointed because in the interview, they linked it and they said, here is the document on how the names work in A Memory Called Empire. And then I clicked on it and it was to Tor's website and it was page not found. And I was disappointed with That is quite Tor. disappointing. As, uh, I mean, better than clicking on it and it being a rickroll <laughs> because those are still out there. I, I would have rather because like... like <laughs> Like someone made the choice to take that down and then didn't edit the article out of it. Yeah. Um, we're super excited to do this book, though. Um, and I think it's kind of an obvious choice um, because of how successful this book has been. I mean, I'm looking at my notes right now and it says yeah, all the awards stuff. and it's a long list of awards. I mean, this is obviously the most recent Hugo award winning book, as well as a nominee for the Locust and Nebula. It was actually the winner of NPR's favorite book of 2019. So this was like the book that was the most successful before. And you just read the book and it's super obvious why. Yeah, it was so, it was Game of Thrones level deep world building, honestly. Like it was completely organic, you know, nothing was forced. I mean, and it was also a slow burn, which like, you know, I think that a lot of people, they enjoy the slow burn books as well when it comes to 
uh, pacing because it's exhausting sometimes to read these, you know, thrillers when it's like just twist after twist after twist. And it's, that's fun too, but it, it does kind of get wearing at some point because you almost expect something to one up the last thing. And, but this was, I mean, the slow burn, there was intrigue. It was a political thriller. And I've heard a lot of people say that political thrillers, you shouldn't pitch agents with that anymore because, you know, it's just, it's just overdone. But like, this is a political thriller done well, I think, you know? Yeah. It's been kind of a good opportunity with doing this podcast and reading some of these books because I've actually read them all twice now because I cheated and I thought I was cheating and I wouldn't have to read by picking books I had already read. And I went ahead and and read them all again just because you have to do the book justice on the podcast. And I got so much more out of this book the second time because you know when you're listening to an audiobook and you're doing other things you're following the story but there's so much like neat and detail in this story that when you generally know what the plot is and you know what's going to happen and you're just experiencing all of the amazing culture and language that's in this book it's just remarkable it, it is such an amazing feat and I can kind of tell that the author is an academic as well just like with the just beautiful extent and command of both language and knowledge that she has because I think that's something that was really interesting that I had to realize in my growth as a writer is that when I was you know first starting out I was focused a lot on techniques and you know be afraid of adverbs and you know here's how a plot prosaic stuff but at the end of the day yeah at the end of the day you can be a technically good writer but you also have to have a lot of ideas and just how she has both of those two things is just phenomenal yeah I mean it's just uh, when I was reading I Am Legend, um, which is by uh, Matheson, um, a lot of the critiques I was reading was it's a mile wide and an inch deep, um, which is, it's a good book. I enjoyed I Am Legend, but um, it was kind of thin at places where you could say, oh, you could kind of poke some holes and the whole story kind of fell apart. But with this story, it is like a mile wide and 10 miles deep because it just, she gives the illusion that she has planned out the intricacies of every aspect of this culture. I mean, it is just a masterclass in world building. And when I was going through the first 500 words of this, I had the same thought that you did where I said, wow, I I need to read this again because I'm picking up things that she's foreshadowing in the first sentences that I'm not seeing, you know, at the end of the book that I didn't see the first time I read it. And I also thought, and I'm going to pay you a little bit of a compliment here, is that it sounded like your writing. Thanks for warning me about the compliment. I would not have been <laughs> prepared otherwise. <laughs> you know, I, I try to help people along on their journeys. Um, but I mean, I used to be of the opinion. We used to kind of play opposites in our old writing group, which I, I would always tell you to tone down the reading level of your prose. And this was clearly written by somebody who's a PhD. She uses SAT Amazing words. words. Yeah. I love that I have to look yeah. it up. It's and great. You know what? I mean, it won awards for it. And it, it, it just goes to show you don't have to be writing on a fifth grade level to be a bestseller. Like she, I think people want a book to challenge them. Sometimes, you know. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, there's definitely an audience for that. But before we get too deep, I think I want to pause and give a, a quick synopsis of the book just in case people are listening and they haven't read it. And of course, you know, we are a spoilerish podcast. You're going to hear some of the things that, that do happen in the, in the story. Actually, no. Pause right now and read the entire thing. <laughs> yes. Don't don't come back until you've done this book. It's, it's too diligent. 
But the uh, premise of this book is it's a space opera, I think, is, you know, the um, subgenre definition that we chose this book to, you know, slot into that category well, we're gonna, for. I'm going to interrupt you for one second. We're going to have to come back to that yeah. because she actually responded to our tweet when we were first getting started saying that, like, I don't believe yes. it's space opera. So we Interesting. have... Well, Goodreads did categorize it as a space opera. Well... We did get it straight from the author. But that also brings up the question of the intentional fallacy. Does the author own the rights to the... Does the author own the right to say my work belongs here when it's out in the world? Anyway, continue. Interesting. Very interesting. So the premise of this book is that Mahit, our main character, is an ambassador from a small space station to the Empire of Texcalon. And she's going there because the previous ambassador has mysteriously disappeared. And she has what's called an imago machine, which is a subset of his memories embedded into her brain. So she knows all of the knowledge that he had and generations of the people of their space station community had for before them. But she has an incomplete copy of him. She has him... 14 years ago and so the two of them together or 15 yeah the the two of them together are going to figure out what happened to him and it's that's just the beginning and that's what i love about such a good premise is that you can pitch the hook of it so quickly like that but then the rest unfolds because if your book is you know kind of simplistic and you are having a hard time pitching it because you don't want to give it away then it's like well you need to follow the escalation principle, which is, well, here's the initiating series of events, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but that's how the whole thing starts. And I think, um, let's talk about the this the space opera definition a little bit. Um, how would you define space opera to start with? Jacob? I was also going to kind of jump off something you said where it reminded me, I think I said this already, but it just reminded me a lot of Game of Thrones, where it was very political, but it was also a murder mystery. You know, that's what Game of Thrones turned into was, was you know, who is, who killed the king and like, sorry, not who killed the king, but like, why did the king die? Like, who kind of was neglectful? Yeah. And then. But also it was the murder of the king's hand. In the beginning that's of right. The first that's book. right. And then who was the heir? You know, because then all the, like the yeah. Black of Hareth and stuff. Anyway. But yeah, yeah. It, it reminded me of like very um, strong parallels to that, which was good because Game of Thrones obviously is a great series it's kind of successful but (laughs) that kind of plays into my question though um do you think that political intrigue or at least conflict on the national or in the space context intergalactic scale is a key component of a space opera i'm gonna say absolutely not it doesn't have to be key um of course i am not an expert on science fiction, I've been pretty clear. I've I've been pretty open on this podcast where I was turned off by, of science fiction very early on in my reading career. I don't know journey. But, um, journey. That's that's career. Yeah. Like there's no hierarchy of readers. No one. No one's paying me. No one's paying me. <laughs> Even still. <laughs> but I, I I think that the political intrigue. I mean. I guess I kind of am going to push back against something as well, where a lot of people, they view space opera as the fun, not serious cousin of hard and soft science fiction. Yeah, I've read an an article that called it the opposite of sci-fi, where it's just a fantasy in space. Yeah, Star Wars would be the typical space opera. And while there's some political intrigue, it's much more... 
laser sword wizards and what are they going to do next? <laughs> but know? I would say, I don't know if I would call it political intrigue, but my question I think was more focused on the scale of the conflict because the, the scale of conflict in Star Wars is the Empire versus the Rebels, which affects many planets and many different races and kinds of people. And, and I think that if you want to take a more critical lens at defining space opera, because I think the that original term, I read an article from, from Tor that asked this question and we can tweet this article. Um, this is from 2017 that talks about, you know, is it just fantasy in space? And it was used as a derogatory at, at first, you know, kind of like soap yeah. operas was like the most trash of television. So well, it's like, it's opera. like pulp. Yeah. It's, yeah. Tr- it's the, you know, like you said, laser sword ish, like pew pew. Like that's, that's it. It just has that aesthetic that's fun and there's no other substance to it. But I think that that world's level of conflict is something that you can't achieve in super hard science fiction because we talked about hard science fiction last time when we did The Martian, and it's very specific about could you survive on Mars? Here's how. But we don't have enough space to make the scientific arguments about conflicts between different planets in in science fiction while looking at the science in the, in the story. So you have to step away from the hard science fiction to get to that interplanetary social conflict that you can have in a space opera so my my thought was you know you're gonna have to look in a space opera you can bring up those questions about um society's relationship to space because you kind of get rid of the barriers of hard science if that makes sense yeah i think that that makes sense i just hesitate to paint with that broad of a brush regarding genre you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like um and 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 to be just to be clear what i was thinking of when i was talking about star wars i was thinking of the f- of, uh, of the prequels for whatever reason that was what i thought of <laughs> not um, most people don't think of the prequels but okay <laughs> right but when you when you put it in the context of the original trilogy yeah it, it is the empire versus it is a large scale story about oppression and this is a large scale story about colonialism which is something we should also talk about as people who live in a culture with the skin color in the culture that has been on the on the end that holds all the power in colonialism and how we viewed this book through the eyes of somebody who is not part of that in-group. I agree. You know what I mean? Yeah, we should definitely talk but, about that next. But in terms of... But your question, yeah, so, sorry, could you repeat your question so my, again? My, so, you know, thinking about, you know, what we're trying to do with the podcast and defining different genres and subgenres, what do you expect from a space opera? Okay, I expect a story that is more focused on telling a good story, whether that's between interpersonal um, relationships or large-scale events, and less focused on the problem of science, I guess. Yeah. That's what I expect with the space opera. So, yeah, it does fit your definition. I'm being a pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think, you know, something that's that's really uh, w- what I hear from what you're saying is that the space opera is really going to have that space aesthetic, but it's going to focus on the character and the conflict more so than on the set pieces of the world and how they work and what they do. Those things are just going to be functions of the story. And you see that in this book really, really well, because the technology of the Imago machine is so well embedded with the plot 
You can have cool, fun things and your readers are going to put up with some cool, fun things. But in order to have a high concept book that works really well, the technology you invent needs to be heavily integrated with the stakes and the events of the story. Yes. So I'm going to quote the tweet that she talked to us about. Okay. Sorry, that she tweeted at us. And our brand new baby Twitter account, she replied to us. It was fantastic. It, it was really cool. And we really appreciate if Arcade Martin, that's how you say it, right? Is it Arcade Martin? I only know from the audiobook. You, I assume yeah. that would be correct. And, and and that's what I, that's what I know from as well. I was shocked because it was her and... um. Is it Adrian Tchaikovsky? Yeah. And I was just completely shocked that they had responded to an account with like a follower being... <laughs> me like you know she said i would call memory political sf because of the high drama politics setting and world work i found that just oh that's it sorry um and she was responding because we had called it space opera and then like later on in the thread she had said i don't worry about genre i leave that up to the reviewers so i guess in this case we're it's also a zen philosophy to hold is like i'm not going to worry about what this is categorized as i'm just going to write what i want to write so i was wondering what your not response but i was wondering what you thought of that tweet um as and and as political sf as a subgenre of is it is is it its own genre or is it a subgenre of hard science or soft science fiction you know I, i'm not really sure yeah where i yeah. would place that I'm not sure where you could map that um, or even if, you know, you need to map that. It maybe just creates its own category, a bucket. But I think that it's a very interesting category to exist because I think that science fiction gives us the opportunity to provide commentary on our world and our society in a way that other genres don't really do. Because it is our world, but any way we want you to look at it, like we can draw your attention to any aspect of society through the lens of the story that in a fantastical made up world or in our world, but with a specific series of events and you, you know, create political figures, but you kind of sort of actually recognize who they're supposed to be in our real world. Science fiction, you just have the perfect set of circumstances in which to discuss different ideas. Um, which I think kind of brings us back to um, the theme of the story, which you had already mentioned, was that the way that this book explores and introduces colonialism. And I think that was what struck me so much the first time I read it. And and I felt myself exploring deeper as, as I had read it the second time, because um, we've talked before about the plot mechanism of the Watson character or the portal experience where you have someone who doesn't understand what's going on or doesn't understand the um, world and then it gets explained or introduced to them and that's how you explain or introduce things to the reader. And we have that with, you know, Mahit going to be the ambassador to Tex Kalan, but she does have some context, um, you know, because she's been training for this her entire life, but she still is the outsider, you know, moving inward. Um, And I think just, um, I would say the theme of the book, you know, it's kind of explored in this idea of, excuse me, it's kind of explored in this idea of one culture devouring another. There's this interstitial um, where um, one of the LaSalle leaders, like it's revealed that she was like sabotaging some of the technology. Um, And it's because she has disdain for these, you know, new younger ambassadors who are just like obsessed with the idea of the Texcalon culture. And so like Texcalon in the book, it's the empire, you know, it's, you know, a memory called it. That's, that's the empire. Um, 
it's it's just so telling in how dominant dominant it is and even from those first few pages like you get the sense that like this empire which is expanding and annexing things is threatening it's described as beautiful like they use the term the jewel of the world but i think having that empathetic reader experience and seeing how a culture seeing how it feels to have a culture like devouring another is not some it's not a perspective that i've I've had before reading this book and thinking about oh wow like everything is is disappearing and um I'll say I'll say one more thing but I even saw like thinking about the character of Mahit her identity in the beginning of the book how she defines herself is how Texcalanli she is she talks about making up her own fake Texcalanli name and you know trying to study the poetry and she is you know trying to be the most Texcalanli person on her LaSalle station because that's how she, you know, defines a value of herself. She is reminiscent of characters in novels written by generally white people, which is the unthreatening outgroup. So like the the I, I might cut this. I'm not really sure what you think. I'm so I'm going to say it. But uh like the magical negro is kind of an archetypal character in a lot of fiction from the pre-civil rights and even up in, into the early 2000s like even in Stephen King's The Long Green Line or Green Mile is that what it is Green Mile yeah yeah um there's that character exists and it's it's like the uncle tom like the non-threatening mm-hmm. person that is kind of is is not threatening because he doesn't fall into the racist ideals of the main character you know what i mean you see that a lot in Flannery O'Connor in Judgment Day, where the main character views this academic black man as not like the others, which is its own set of problems. And I'm not saying that Arcade Martin in any way is being racist, but I think that that trope is a little bit reflected in somebody who really wants to be a part of the culture that is devouring her own culture. You know, does that make any sense at all? Yeah, it does. And because you can see the impact also that it's having on the culture that she comes from. And so I think you can tell this story, um, you know, through her own eyes. But I'm also really interested in seeing, you know, where this story goes. The second book was released earlier this year. It's called A Desolation Called Peace. Which is apparently stolen from a journal of like a Roman general, which is just... Oh, that's... It's it's in the public domain now. You can steal it. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's, <laughs> it's 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 great because I mean, like, what did he say? Is like Rome does not leave. Oh, I have to. I have to look it up. Hold on one second. Rome makes a desert and calls it peace, which is about you know uh, like annihilation of entire cities and cultures and and saying yeah we're peaceful now. It's like no, you just killed it. Yeah. <laughs> but the one thing that I found interesting about early on in the book um, was that how totally and completely condescending the expansion history book in the first, in chapter one, it starts with the, uh, what is, what are these things called? Like above the chapters. That is an epigraph. um, The epigraph. Thank you. Before at the end, it's describing LaSalle station from the perspective of a historian from Texacolan. And it says, the largest of these shells called itself LaSalle Station, which in the language of its people meant a station that both listened and heard. But the people there had grown strange and cleaved to themselves, though they were capable of learning language and immediately began to do so. 
then later on, when she is coming down into the city, she says, The city appeared exactly as it was always described in, in a Texacolanly documents and songs, the jewel at the heart of the empire. So you see this kind of historical representation of the people from LaSalle Station as one, one the outgroup and less intelligent barbarians than Texacolan, which always describes itself by its own historians as the jewel of the world and wonderful and glorious. And you kind of see this reflected as well, I think, in American culture, where you had this idea of the melting pot, where you would shed your own culture and kind of blend in and become one with American culture. Now we've kind of apparently revised it to a salad bowl. I learned that in elementary school. I don't know if you learned that as well. I was homeschooled, so I didn't learn anything. Um, <laughs> but I think it's interesting that you bring up these themes and um, because in the beginning of the book, they're representing LaSalle as you know, less educated, for example. But then, of course, what happens later in the book, they have this Imago technology where they can store the memories of past generations. And of course, the empire wants to steal it. The emperor you know, wants that because he thinks you know, it can help him achieve his ends prolong his rule exactly, <laughs> essentially like exactly. continue to keep his power and so i mean you can reference the salad bowl but you know how often do we see this in you know the colonialist culture let's take something from our cult from that culture now it's part of our culture and everyone gets to have it and it belongs to everyone now um so it's you're kind of seeing that reflected as well we see the same thing in the english language you know we just take from old norse and german and Latin, Italian, like whatever you want. We just kind of were like, yeah, we want that. It's ours now. Deal with it. Yeah. I was, uh, the role that language plays in this book is so interesting because I, I think, I mean, that's one great thing about, you know, writing any kind of speculative fiction is that you can take the things that you love and make the book all about it. So I think this author is a poet and poetry plays a significant role in this society. Like if you're a amazing poet, then you're being elevated in your social status big time. Um, so what, like, what are some thoughts you have on the role of poetry? Because I think, I mean, you've taught poetry. I don't really know as much about it. It reminded me a lot of the courtly English poetry around King Henry VIII's rule. Um, so like Thomas Wyatt and Sir Henry Howard, um, because it was a way for poets to kind of speak out against the crown without necessarily getting themselves beheaded because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's just art you know i mean you have you have sir thomas wyatt with his his poem my galley um he goes my galley which is a, a ship charged with forgetfulness it goes on and he talks about how there's a storm coming and the ship is being battered between rock and rock and ends with the line and i remain despairing of the port and one reading of this is that it's about a woman that he's just like set adrift. But the other reading of it is that he's actually, you know, his galley is being steered by his Lord, which is either King Henry or God himself. And it, it says the line is he steereth with cruelness. And how I've taught it and read it is that it's about Henry's schism with the Catholic Church because he wanted a male heir and he formed Anglicanism. And it's I I found it representative of how people kind of, how artists have spoken out in, in monarchies in the past, I guess, is, I, I'm not sure, I'm kind of rambling, but, but that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I think it, it does speak a little bit to what I was saying before about how, you know, through science fiction as an example, you have a perfect context for social commentary 
and yeah. not just a social commentary because a commentary it feels you know kind of like a cold exchange but in a in a way that's very empathetic and immersive and you can really understand it from your own yeah. personal context because you find so many things in this book that you can identify with kind of kind of like I was saying before like by making the experience of a, you know trying to join a culture that's devouring your own so accessible through the experience of this character I I not, I won't say that I understand what that's like but I am able to have more perspective and think oh that's really that is something that's really important that I should be cognizant of my own role in that that's kind of the point of books too is to kind of expose yourself to other people's perspective and you know Arcade Martinez is a historian herself and I think it's a great use of her her skills and talents in that realm because most white people have never been in an out group, you know? Right. Well, I think that most white people don't recognize the role that their race plays in their identity. And, yeah, and that's, that's a better way to say The it. relationship between their identity and the culture you come from is, is so clear in this book because you also see that in the romantic relationship between Mahit and Three Seagrass because, well, Mahit, you know, is in the beginning of the book, as we see, like identifying herself as, well, how Texcalanly am I? And, and I'll be more valuable if I am more Texcalanly. Uh, Three Seagrass is super Texcalanly. She's the best at the poetry competition, but she admits that she has a thing for aliens. And so that's why Which she's is kinda, attractive. Kind of gross in a way. It's, like, well, like and that's how it's re- represented in the book as well, yeah. to some extent. I, I really, I loved that. Um, I, I, I loved how that kind of courtship evolved because it was, it was so much more healthy, I think, than a lot of male gazy things I've read in the past. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not really sure how you felt as as a woman. Um, I felt like it. I felt like it developed organically, which I think right. in a lot of romantic arcs in books, you it it happens because of a lust relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which the first time I read the book, I missed it entirely until it actually happened. But then the second time, it was so obvious <laughs> to me. Yeah. Um, but it's because it it, it it didn't have that lust arc, which I, I do agree was refreshing to some extent. Yeah, and it was it was so it was normal, it was natural, and like it was the first time I had read something like that that wasn't from the perspective. And and this is really my own fault because I haven't really, as my mother would say, broadened my horizons <laughs> with books so often. Is there any other part you want to talk about? I have a one more idea, but I'm trying to figure out how. I don't know if it's important enough anyway. Well, I can go over the 500 words. Yeah. Um, okay. I have a couple things that I want to say about that. We can start there if you want. Yeah. Or... I only have like one more thing that I wanted to say, but I'll just say it at the end because it's a small thing. Sure, sure, sure. Um, the first 500 words, it goes from, obviously, I, I picked, um, I decided to do again to, to skip the prologue and go with chapter one. It starts with the line, um, heat came down into the city, heart planet and capital of the Texacolanly empire in a seed skiff, a bubble of a ship, hardly big enough for her body and luggage. And then it goes all the way down to when she's talking to Yaskander and he says, and she says, what's down there? She thought for you. And he says, the world. Um, and then it kind of goes into, um, how he's a living person in a long chain of live memory. And I thought the great thing about this beginning was that it was engaging and it was 
it sowed enough seeds for the rest of the novel that it didn't really need to talk about the murder mystery plot. Cause it really, while that was how that was the inciting incident that her predecessor was murdered, it really wasn't what the story was about. And at the end of the day, it was about her finding herself in this new role as an ambassador. It was almost a coming of age story. I, I, I believe. Um, but we start out for the first paragraph and a half. It's just pretty much straight description of the city. And I think that generally I'd advise new authors against that. But I think in this situation, because the city was so important to the plot of the story that it, it was warranted. Let's see. And then from, and she was nevertheless overcome by all her heartbeat faster. That was all characterization. It was great. And then really from the end of that, that paragraph to the rest of it, like when a Yaskander has his first lines and how they talk about, you know, consent and everything. I mean, that was all for me. It was just brilliantly done. Um, I had that all as the gold standard, which was two or more, you know, the character reveals themselves or setting or plot. The juxtaposition between LaSalle in this, as described um, in the previous paragraphs, and we already talked about that. Um, and her focus on the parts of the world that are the imperfect, where the story is, I mean, things that have broken down, where she's been thrust into this role before she's ready. It's a fish out of water story. Like, that's what people want. That's the interesting part. In the beginning, it reminded me of a passage from Beowulf when the heroes cross over um, the sea and you get the description of them coming across. It's about 10 lines of, of Beowulf that as she's coming down into the city, it reminded me of him coming onto the shores of uh, Shield Chiefson's tribe. Um, and it, it just the parallel structure there was great. And then it also reminded me of Sailing to Byzantium by Yates. She's a self-described um, historian and she has a PhD and she's a city planner. So the far reaching nature, the interplay between the cultural aspect of this story, which is represented in the Byzantine empire. It was this, the center of art and music. And she kind of combined that with the military uh, prowess of Rome and created this wonderful culture that is both aggressive through its military and aggressive through its culture, because the stuff that they make is so good that their people they conquer want to imitate it. And I guess that was a question I had for you. How do you think she handles those conflicting power structures? The sneaking cultural power is almost more potent than the battleships and the warmongering. How do you think she built both of those things and how would an author do that effectively? Not to put that on you to solve that right now, but yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's, um, it's really good for um, some of the final thoughts that I had about this story. Uh, but first, I'll say just as a comment to your entire analysis of, of these first 500 or so words is that it's clear that the author knows what this book is about and that the, there's so much packed into this with you know, the type of story it is, the themes that are there that are all present um, that, you know, as your first as you're you know, writing your first couple drafts, you're not going to get all of those layers in the first time and you really have to work with your piece and, and really introduce everything um, in this way so that you know the readers do get more and more out of it as they keep going um, but to answer your question about um, the um, 
how do you create this this creeping culture that you know kind of is taking over um i think it's you know you um you first of all make the world and the culture so appealing and if you look at Texcalan, that is the bright jewel where um it's funny because the thing that i wanted to talk about is the food i really want to eat whatever that dumpling dish with the red oil that's spicy i really want to eat that like I think it was it was some sort of a meat curry. Like yeah, I mean, it just it sounds sign, sign amazing. Me up. And then they're always yeah. eating flowers. Like it's just like it just it sounds fantastic. Like it's beautiful. Of course you want to come, you know, be part of this golden city with the poetry and it's so sophisticated. And so I think um, you know, it's it's kind of hard to you know to point at something and say, that's destroying my culture. But I also want to do it too. I want to be part of it too. But I also, you know, that's the, that that already creates a conflict. Um, where also in this story, though, uh, we're we're hearing a lot about the um, broader scale conflicts with, um, you know, there's this character One Lightning who sort of is the leader of the rebellion, and it's it's very clear that on the edges of the empire there are, um, you know, other communities that they might destroy outright, you know, just as a um, political pawn, and so it's it's very clear that this beautiful city, that which is an amazing experience to be there, its people, in order to maintain their lifestyle, will destroy a place they don't understand, and it's just not as important to them as this. And so you're you're kind of maybe envious because you want to have that lifestyle, but at the same time, it's it's not exactly um, people with integrity because they're not valuing people who aren't like them. Well, it kind of reminds me of, I mean, you know, we're, we've talked about this before. We're both Catholic, you know, and we, we didn't grow up in the same parish, but in, in a similar area. I mean, I remember when the Spanish mass became, you know, like they started doing a Spanish mass at my parish and a lot of people, a lot of people were like, why don't they just learn our language? Like, why are we catering to them? And I remember as a kid thinking, they can't speak English, so why are why is it a problem? <laughs> yeah, you know? and it's like a similar like thing. I think where you when you're in the in group, you you don't really think of what value other people's culture can bring to you. You know, right? What I mean? And I, I think mean, also, yeah. I mean, just to speak very explicitly to that um, Catholic experience that both you and I have, I will hear some of our. Uh, people in, in that in-group, as you called it, um, speak about the idea of Catholic culture and we have to preserve Catholic culture. But to that, I would ask, well, what is Catholic culture? Because Catholic culture in the Philippines is certainly not the same culture as it is in Brazil, much less here. You know, so how would you define Catholic culture, you know, other than your insular experience? Well, and the interesting thing is a lot of those people who who are obsessed with preserving Catholic culture, what they mean is traditional family values and the Latin mass. Right. There's a liturgy associated with that. But, but, but the Byzantine mass came before the Latin mass. So it ties into this as well. Cause she, she, she drew from the Byzantine empire. So yeah, I have a friend who's Orthodox. So she's like, if you guys want to fight about, you know, someone's culture getting taken over, she's like, I'll tell you about that. (laughs) She'll leave a comment. Yeah. She'll leave a comment. (laughs) Oh man. I had something else too. Um, 
Oh, men, right? God, yeah. <laughs> men. No, but but this this book, every every woman in this book was in a position of power and every man took a back seat. The, the emperor himself was old and sickly and he kind of came off as somebody who was uh, was terrified of losing his power. Like the person in power at the end was the Iswazwa cat, 19 ads. And I, I wanted to get your take on on her handling of men in this book and juxtaposing that with how women traditionally in science fiction and fantasy have been used as a sort of sacrificial lamb for character development. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I recently read The Lies of Locke Lamora. And mm, yeah. I was so frustrated with how every female character was just a mechanism of the plot. And it was like so flat and like the NPCs, like <laughs> literally like even his love interest, who's just like far off and distant, something he longs for that's larger than the plot. It was just like it's it, it's just so like frustrating to read a book where you're like these characters with who I would relate because I have more shared experience with them than I do with, you know, this, you know, thieving main character, um, yeah. are just signifying that they're not important or they're only important in the, in the relation to him. Um, but I think like in, in this book, you know, it's, it's clear that, you know, the women are in these powerful positions, but you do also have very robust male characters. I mean, yeah, there's a robust male character. Like, and so I, I don't think that it's, you know, kind of a, a flip-flopping where it's like, well, we'll just put women on top now and now things are better. Um, so, so I do think it was a, a good um, nuanced approach. Um, and, and, I, and I like your, yeah. your interpretation of that um, uh, perspective on the, the emperor because, I mean, I think I've certainly seen that, you know, in, in my own life, uh, people, usually men, who think well, I've achieved X and I, I've earned it. I'm owed this. I deserve this. And I yeah. need to just keep it no matter the cost to anyone else or, or you know, to the, you know, uh, company or to whatever, because the company, yeah, I, I know I'm, I'm in the office. I've earned it, you know, and, and, and they just expect it to stay that way um, because that is, you know, what, what they were always told that you, that you will earn this and then you will have it, you know. And um, meanwhile, like, you know, younger people are trying to evolve themselves every day and survive, you know, because that's <laughs> right. what our world was like now. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think it was interesting. It was, it was nuanced and relatable. Well, I mean, and I think I'm sure that there are some men who would take great issue with it. Um, I don't think it's her audience, but <laughs> I'm sure that if I were to tell somebody that I went to high school with, that they'd have a problem um, with that portrayal. Cause every man in this story is, in a way, in a way culturally to our current situation, is is a way impotent. You know, like Iskander, he's a nebulous consciousness yeah. in a woman's body. The emperor can't save himself. Um, one lightning gets kind of owned by a ambas- a barbarian, in air quotes, ambassador and, you know, three seagrass. And then the Izwazwa cat gets put on top. And um, even the male at the end um 13 azalea i i'm not really sh- no not but his like crony guy mm-hmm. is like this bumbling bureaucrat that just kind of gets everything taken from him and like i'm you know i i thought that that was it was a wonderful reversal and i think that that's that's a it's needed 
I think. And I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, my wife is the, is the breadwinner <laughs> right now. You know, it's not something that is in any way triggering to me because that's where our culture is going. That like women, it's their time, I guess. I think Hillary Clinton said that. Maybe I'm misquoting her. I, I, I don't know, but. Um, yeah. Or not even that it's like, oh, women should be expected to do this, but any woman could. I think yeah, the, is, is the, the resonates best with me. Yeah, it, that's that's a better way to say it. Like the glass ceiling, it is still there, obviously. In some, I mean, you you hear about something every day, especially in like the gaming and tech industries, that they're still struggling with that. We, there's still a long way to go, but is it's a, another way that science fiction can demonstrate the world as we want it to be, and not the ex- world as it is. Exactly. I'm an, exactly. I I read these book things and they stay in my head. <laughs> I believe I, them. <laughs> I thought you came up with that. Uh, no, that is a Neil Gaiman. Oh, uh, well, I... Believe it or not, Jacob, high, Neil Gaiman and I are not the same person. I had a high opinion of you, and now it's <laughs> slightly less high. Well, this has been fantastic, and this is our second to last book in our sci-fi cycle. Yeah, we have... Re- Recursion. Recursion. By Blake I, start, Crouch. I, I read the first little bit... Um, Yes. Just as a preview. Is that, that's was, our sci-fi thriller? Uh, is that what... The, it had some... I tasted some noir in there. Yeah. It had some good, good dark I love it flavors. because I, I realized that there's this um, trope of the scientist and their research that's portrayed in a very academic setting. And I do work at a university. And so I I, I enjoy reading it and be like, yes, that is, that is the words we use. <laughs> <laughs> See, I haven't gotten that far. He's like on the elevator and I put it down. I said, this is too good. I can't, can't. continue to read this because I will con- I will not I will not be able to stop. So I'm excited. Um, I I did want to ask you about the pacing here. I know that we're kind of way, excuse me, way over, but the first two thirds of this novel is a slow burn, right? Right. And then this, the last third is is they like they start falling like the dominoes that she's she's set up fall fall fast did you think that that plot device worked well or 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 were you shocked at how quickly it ended the book? um i wasn't shocked at how quickly it ended because this is a trilogy I'm pretty sure it's planned to be a trilogy. And not it's a duology, I think. Is it just the two? Okay. But but in just in the fact that it had a sequel um if this was meant to be a standalone book, then I would feel that it was rushed. But instead, that pace, the context of that pace was that something else will happen after this. Um, and so, the, you know, there's the first two thirds. It's like we've entered the world and we're understanding the scope of this story. But then it's OK. And now we're going to give you much more pieces to prepare you for the next phase. But but I, I felt like as a reader, I, I felt like it was a, a good deal struck with me. Yeah. And then, well, how about the relationship at the end? Like, Three Seagrass is just kind of, they're, they're apart. She's back on the cell. Uh, Mahit is. And- well, I think it really speaks to these characters' uh, identity as individuals. Because it says that, you know, you can recognize and celebrate and have a relationship with someone. Um, but also, it doesn't have to look like... I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, you can have a relationship that affirms the goodness in someone but it then doesn't spool out into 
you know, a, a lifetime together. You don't have to give up everything you are for your relationship um, in order to like recognize how, how good someone is. It affirms the ability of one person to have a moment with another to say, I recognize the person that you are that is amazing and affirm your, yeah. your goals and you should go pursue them. So I guess it's kind of like, oh, if you love someone, let it go kind of thing. But um, that was Brendan Urie who said that. <laughs> and it wasn't me. <laughs> I didn't make it up. <laughs> so I think like, you know, I, I, it's, it's not saying like, yeah, that's what you should desire for yourself. I mean, if you do desire that for yourself, of course, you know, you're free to do that. But I think yeah. it's not disappointing to me as a reader experiencing this story because it's like, and they saw each other as individuals and celebrated that, you know, and, and not just like, oh, I yeah. wish you were more Tex Kalanli or I, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was just so, so good to have that affirmation of each other. It's just everything, like, like their relationships seem so healthy in the book where it was like, yeah, this is who you are and this is who I am. And like, we're going to make this work for as long as it, as we can. And then, you know, she wanted to go home and, and, and three seagrass wanted to continue on her, her career trajectory. And like, sometimes you just, that's what happens and you value different things at different times. And yeah. the, the other thing that I, 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 I learned from this interview was that she did pull a fair bit from Christianity and the human sacrifice element of the emperor wasn't necessarily a direct parallel to the Eucharist, but it was, you know, something that she consciously pulled from which i found interesting as well it's very interesting but we are running out of time <laughs> but you can take that bit where i start introducing the next book and put it here right is that too much editing? i didn't go to real editor school <laughs> I, i'm pretend all right well, pretend editor <laughs> well we'll uh take this up for our next last sci-fi cycle episode with recursion by blake crouch to talk about more memory. Very interesting. I'm very excited for that one. Uh, and it is memories as well. It is. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to The Archetypist. If you'd like to support us, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash archetypist or on Twitter under at archetypist underscore pod. Our next episode completes our journey into the science fiction genre. Our last novel is Recursion by Blake Crouch. Thank you for listening. And as always, stay positive, stay safe, and stay connected. Archetypists, out.